Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Mason Brown. I am the uh, student ministries director uh, here at Rio, and uh, I've shared uh, me- with uh, I've shared this with many of you before. Uh, but what that essentially means uh, is that I have the best job in the entire world, like hands down, no joke. And I say that because, yes, while well, playing video games and dodgeball at least, keyword, at least twice a week, is a huge perk to the job, which it is. I get it. I know that many of you, if you're honest, were, probably wish you could somehow incorporate a good old game of dodgeball at your place of work so that you can let off a little bit of steam or stress. It might, I'm just saying, it might, it might produce staff productivity. I don't know, but you can, you can try that out. Um, but anyways, the, the real reason why I love what I do is because as a staff, uh, we have the great honor and privilege to walk alongside your students as we, in accordance with God's word, uh, help them navigate these crazy years that they find themselves in. Uh, which, let's be honest, it can be pretty chaotic and confusing at times. Especially... Since this generation and Generation Z is the first generation in all of American history that is raised, according to Barna Research, in a post-Christian culture, and which, as you can assume, makes things quite uh, interesting. According to uh, the research, um, out of every 100 students, uh, only four students hold to a true uh, biblical worldview. Meaning they have a a biblical framework and understanding, you can kind of say a a working definition of who God is, what sin is, who Jesus is, and the hope that we have because of what he's done for us on the cross. And, And so with that being said, you can only imagine the questions that your students are are bombarded with, not only from culture at large, but from their friends as well when it comes to faith and life. Uh, and so in our student ministry, we, we try uh, to create a platform for your students and to ask not only the questions that they or their friends have, uh, but we want to provide an opportunity to talk about those things, to talk about those things that are heavy on their heart, those things that they have questions about. We don't want to just sweep them underneath the rug, but we want to dialogue about them. Wherever they're at within their spiritual journey in Christ, whether they believe, whether they're indifferent, we want to talk about those things that are heavy on their heart. We want to talk about those questions. And this morning, I actually want to share some of those questions with you. And so here's what some of your students have asked. How do we know that Jesus actually rose from the grave? Another student writes, I've changed a lot, but my reputation hasn't. It's painful because I feel like people want me to relive my shame constantly, and that's what keeps me up at night. What do I do if I've completely changed my life and trusting in who Jesus is, but people still shame and define me by my past? And lastly, a student says, in my life, a lot of people have abandoned me. How do I know that God won't do the same? And that he actually desires to have a relationship with me. Those are just some of the many questions that your students are asking. And just on a side note, it's been incredibly, it's been amazing to be able to walk that journey with them and to dialogue about those things that are heavy on their heart. However, the question that is asked more than any other, it goes something like this. 
Why does God not only allow bad things to happen to good people, but where is he in the midst of their suffering? Does he just abandon them and turn his back on them for that period of time? Where is he? Where does he go? And so this morning, as we turn to Matthew 14, and as we look at this iconic story of Jesus walking on the water, my prayer is that we would see that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the different storms that we might experience, we worship a God who's not only with us in the midst of our suffering, but who ultimately has a purpose for each and every storm that we experience today. And the question, however, is will we trust him in order to see what he'll do in and through us? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's somewhat of a heavy topic, but hopefully it will be good. Um, But anyways, before we jump into our passage, before we jump into Matthew 14, it's important for us to understand what has just happened. And so Jesus, he's just taken a little boy's lunch which consisted of five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed over 5,000 people, which was probably closer to ten or 15,000 when you include the women and the children that were a part of that crowd as well. And, and so you can only imagine the uproar and that began to ensue immediately following this amazing miracle. I mean, put yourself within the crowd's shoes. I mean, many of them were probably bewildered. They were probably thinking, like, what did we just witness Like, was that some sort of magic trick, or did that actually happen? Some of them, maybe for selfish reasons, were thinking that this man, Jesus, could be the solution to all of their economic problems. I mean, if he could multiply food, could he not multiply their treasure, their money? Think about that. And so as the commotion begins to build, the crowd who is so fixed on the physical aspect of the miracle instead of its spiritual significance, saw Jesus as someone that could lead their rebellion against Rome. According to John's gospel, we see that the crowd even wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their political king. But Jesus, he he wanted nothing to do with this. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one. And so in perceiving the crowd's intentions... Uh, That's where we pick up uh, this morning. Perceiving the crowd's intentions, in verse 22 of Matthew 14, it says this. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And and notice what happens next. It says, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And I love that. I love how this passage begins, especially into a heavy topic. We see that after a full day's worth of work of Jesus healing the sick, performing miracles, and dismissing a somewhat forceful crowd. I mean, these people wanted to make Jesus their their political king. Jesus does what? He withdraws. He goes up a mountain and he prays unto his father in secret. And as you look at the life of Jesus, you'll see that this is one thing that he does time and time again. And if you're anything like me, you've probably asked yourself the question, why? I mean, why does he do that? I mean, think about it. If Jesus is the Son of God, the bread of life, the one who is all-sustaining, all-satisfying, why does he need to pray? Isn't that something that people only do when they've exerted every other option and every other resource available to them? Why does he pray? 
Why does Jesus frequently withdraw from the busyness of life to pray and to his Father in secret? Why does he do it? And the answer, or the reason why, is because he's human. He was a man just like me and you. And see, here's the question. If God himself, who came down in the flesh, had to pray, shouldn't we? If he understood his absolute dependence and reliance on God, not only in those moments of weariness and exhaustion, but in his everyday life, shouldn't we? Just something for us to think about, including myself, especially as we begin to dive into this heavy topic, like Jesus, should we daily spend time with our Father in prayer? And so Jesus, he dismisses the crowd and he spends that evening in prayer and the disciples uh, get into a boat and they head to the other side. And if you're familiar with this story, you most likely know what happens next. In verse 24, it says, but the boat which the disciples were in, and by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, and for the wind was against them. And I want you to, try to, I want you to now imagine this scene. Even if you've heard this story like a thousand times, okay? Imagine this scene with me. And the disciples, they're, they're traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which should have only taken them about two hours, when all of a sudden, they come across this storm, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the sea, and in absolute darkness. The only source of light is the lightning which illuminates the sky as the thunder booms, as the wind whips, and as the waves pound against their boat as they get tossed around like a beach ball with no end in sight. Imagine that with me. The disciples are literally fighting for their lives. Imagine the emotions that they must be experiencing. And I know that might be hard for us, even if we try to put ourselves within their shoes, because we've never, or for most of us, we've never been in that specific situation, or at least I hope you haven't. Um, However, we have all experienced metaphorical storms within our lives. And just like literal storms, the storms that we experience within our life can be scary, and they can invoke fear. And since they're unpredictable and they create feelings of uncertainty, and whether that be storms of health, of finances, of marital issues, loss of a loved one or job, or, or maybe for you, they might even be emotional storms in which you're um, experiencing the waves of anxiety and depression just bear down on you. And just like the disciples, you're just trying to keep your head afloat. And since you don't know how long it will last. The storms are also loud as well. Which unfortunately often causes us to drown out the truth that our faith community might be encouraging us to hear. And in truth need to hear. But instead we allow ourselves to be engulfed by the chaos of the storm that we find ourselves in. As we isolate ourselves and believe the lie that we have to try to figure it out all by ourselves. Additionally, the storms that we experience, I'm just going to say it, are exhausting. And just like the disciples, many of us have been fighting against the wind and the waves for what seems like an eternity. And so for many of us, we're tired, we're weary, and we simply long for the day, for the wind and the waves that surround us to cease. 
However, uh, through all these different emotions that we might experience here today, the the one emotion that many of us uh, feel within our hearts, but often don't communicate, is a feeling uh, of abandonment. We feel like God has turned his back on us or that he's become deaf and to our cry for help. And so if you're anything like me in those moments, in the midst of the storm, what do you do? You, you cry out to God and say, God, where are you? And why am I in this storm? Which you have to think at least crossed some of the disciples' minds as they were being thrashed by the wind and the waves. And so where is Jesus? Where is he after he sends his disciples into this storm? Well, what if I told you, Jesus, who knows you more intimately than you know yourself, who knows your needs, who knows what you're going through, who knows your fear, and who, at the end of the day, since he is God, is in control of all things, meaning the waves that are over your head are under his feet, is doing what is best for you. While the disciples are experiencing the storm in all of its fullness, Notice where Jesus is within this passage. He's on the mountainside, and he's praying. And see, here's the thing. Jesus was not only praying then, but he's praying for you right now. And I know that might sound like a Christianese thing to say to make ourselves feel better, especially when we're in the midst of the storm and we're experiencing that storm in all of its fullness and we're wondering where God is and why he's allowed this to happen in the first place. But it's true. And today, Christ is not on some random mountainside praying, but instead, he is risen from the dead, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's pleading your case on your behalf as he intercedes on for you. He's praying for your comfort. He's praying for your strength, for your growth, for your faith to grow, for the Father's will and the good work that he's already started within you and to be completed. In Luke 22, we see a beautiful glimpse of this. Where Jesus, he he comes to Simon Peter before he publicly denies him three times. He comes to Simon Peter and he says, look, Simon, I've prayed for you. I've prayed that your faith should not fail. How amazing is that? Take that in for a moment. In the midst of the storm, Jesus, your Savior, is praying for you that you would not lose faith. That you would not lose sight of who he is and the love that he's already shown to you. But not only that, notice what happens next with me. As the disciples, they're out on the sea, they're battling the storm's rough conditions. In verse 25, it says, and in the fourth watch of the night. And so sometime around 3 or 6 a.m. And so this this trip, which should have only taken them about two hours, has somehow turned into an eight to nine hour experience of being thrashed by the wind and the waves. And so you can only imagine how tired these men are. And so it says in the fourth watch of the night, it says that he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And as you put yourself within uh, their shoes, that's understandably so, right? They're tired. They're exhausted. They see uh, uh, something off in the distance that, that, that looks like a person. So they instantly jump to the conclusion that it must be a ghost. I think we would all be freaking out if we were in that position. And for me personally, I hate to admit it, but I most likely would be in the corner crying. Like that's where I would be. Um, I would be freaking out. But, no, but nevertheless, notice that in the midst of their fear, 
Jesus, he calls out to them. If we continue on, it says, immediately. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus, he immediately addresses their fear with his presence and with his word. He says, guys, do not be afraid. It is I, Jesus, the great I am, the same one who promised you in Isaiah 43, that when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Why? For I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so even though the storm that surrounds you is scary, it's noisy, it's unpredictable, and let's just face it, exhausting. And Jesus comes to you and says, know that I'm here. And know that I'm with you in the midst of it. And so do not be afraid. And while Jesus is not physically present with us here today, he is present with us by his word and by his spirit. And we see that all throughout scripture. And God, by his grace, has given us his word, which is living and active. And it's the primary vehicle in which God speaks to his people. But he's also given us his spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within us to lead us, to guide us, to comfort us. However, even though all that's true, it's, it, it's kind of interesting that when Jesus appears to the disciples within this passage, they're somewhat unable to make out his appearance. The wind and the waves begin to kind of blur their vision, you can say. And I think if we're honest, I think that can be true for us as well. We so often, at least for myself, are consumed by the noise and the chaos of the storm that we find ourselves in, that we're unable to hear and see our Savior. And so the question, at least for many of us, including myself, is are you consumed by the storm that you find yourself in? And that you're unable to hear the sweet voice of your Savior who comes to you in the midst of your brokenness and your pain. And he says, do not be afraid. I'm here. I'm with you. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within you. And so lean on me and my word and the promises that I've given you. And so while it's easy for many of us, if we're honest, and to feel like God has turned his back on us or that he's become deaf uh, to our cry for help when we're in the midst of the storm, and we see that that's the farthest thing from the truth. And so the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is not some far-off deity that has abandoned us when things go awry, but instead he's in fact with you in the midst of the storm. He's present. He's not only above the storm praying for you, praying that you would not lose faith, that you would not lose sight of who he is and the love that he's already shown to you, but he's present with you as he comforts you by his word and by his spirit. Which I don't know about you, but that's incredibly encouraging and comforting to hear. I've been working through that this week. Um, it's encouraging to hear that. Especially and when you realize that Jesus, he's, he's already proven his faithfulness to you. And Jesus, he, he's gone before you and he's defeated the ultimate storm of sin and death that each and every one of us experience. He bore your sin and the debt that you owe to God so that you would not have to bear it. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that you, you who have placed your faith in him, could experience the gift of life instead. And so if Jesus didn't abandon you at the cross, why would he abandon you now? He's already proven his faithfulness to you. He's with you. He comes to you in the midst of the storm that you find yourself in. He says, I'm here. 
lean on me. Draw near to me. But the next question you might be asking was, well, why? Why does Jesus, who knew that this storm would come upon them, why does he send them into the storm in the first place? Why does he do it? And the answer is actually quite simple. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples something. And after he fed the 5,000, the Bible makes it very clear um, that the disciples, just like the crowd, um, still didn't completely understand who he was. And so Jesus, he, he put them in a situation in which he can once again reveal his true identity to them. If you notice, all throughout this passage, there is a sense of immediacy to everything that takes place besides the rescue. He waits. He allows God's will to be done because there is a purpose behind this storm. And this morning, maybe you're here today and something's happened within your life and you think, this is the reason why I can't believe in God. I mean, why would he allow his disciples, even though there might be a purpose, why would he allow his disciples to experience this storm? And if that is you, I first want to let you know I get it. The storms that we experience, the storms that you're experiencing are hard. They're frustrating. They're sometimes just plain old confusing as we try to work through everything. I get it. But I would encourage you to consider as you're in the midst of that storm, just to consider with me that if God is who he says that he is, that he loves you, that he's uh, in fact defeated the ultimate storm of sin and death so that you who have placed your faith in him could be free from uh, the grips of death and experience the gift of life instead. What if, just consider, God has you right here, right now because he wants to show you his amazing love. What if he's, uh, he isn't rescuing from you from your situation, the storm that you find yourself in, not because he doesn't love you, but because he wants you to see him for who he truly is? What if God is restraining himself? And I really do mean that. What if God is restraining himself from delivering you from whatever situation it might be because he ultimately cares more about doing something in you than for you? And so the disciples, they're in the middle of the storm and all of a sudden they see something off in the distance that looks like a person walking on the water. And so they immediately, they, they jump to the conclusion that this person, it must be a ghost until, and Jesus calls out to them and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And then in verse 28, it says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. And so Jesus said, Come. And so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when he took his eyes off the Lord and he began to focus his gaze on the circumstances around him instead, he was afraid. And in being afraid, he began to doubt Jesus' word. And so he began to sink and he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And notice what happens next. It says Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And typically, when we read this passage or when we hear this passage, we think that the climax of the story is when Peter leaves the safety of the boat and takes that huge step of faith and trusting in Jesus' word that he's actually able to walk on the water. 
And make no mistake, that is an important part of this story. It is. But the climax of this story is not about Peter's faith, but it's about Jesus. The reality is this story, like all of the other stories in the Bible, is about our Savior. This is a story about a God that refuses to take his eyes off Peter, even though Peter took his eyes off him. It's about a God who, when we feel like we're drowning under the weight of the storm that we are in, is there to catch us. And most importantly, it's about a God who reveals to us that he's always faithful to save those who call upon his name, even in the midst of their doubt. Which I don't know about you, but that's incredibly encouraging to hear because let's just face it, when the storms of life come, and they will, it's easy for many of us, at least subconsciously, to doubt. We begin to question the Lord's faithfulness. We question whether or not he loves us because if he did, why would he allow these things to happen? Or maybe we even begin to question ourselves and we think, well, maybe if I just tried a little bit harder, or maybe if I just had a little bit more faith, then maybe God would save me. But as we see within this passage, that is the farthest thing from the, from the truth. Now, we are saved not because of the strength or intensity of our faith, but solely because of the object of our faith, which is Christ. And Paul, in Romans 10, he says this, I love this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and never have any questions whatsoever. No, he doesn't say that. He says, as long as you, as long as you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because our salvation, it's rooted not in the strength or intensity of our faith, but it's rooted in the strength of our God. He is faithful, even when we are faithless. But you might be thinking, well, Mason, that's cool and all, but when the storms come and when the doubts begin to invade, well, what do I do? Well, first off, I, I think it's important for us to realize that we all, including myself, I really do mean that, including myself, we all, in some sense, we struggle uh, with doubt. We all have questions. And so first, I, I pray that you would know that you are not the exception to the rule. You're just not. However, as we see within this passage, Jesus, he is stern in rebuking those who doubt. And the reason why is, is, is because it's easy for, um, for all of us or for many of us to believe the lies, especially in the midst of the storm. It's easy, if, easy for us to believe the lies that our doubt preached to us. And so what do you do when that happens? Well, I think that's where Peter's story comes in. And just like Peter, we need to lift our eyes and fix our gaze upon the one who has never uh, abandoned us and call upon his name. As you come before him and say, Lord, even though I don't understand how all of this works and why this is happening, would you give me faith to see it through? Comfort me and strengthen me by the power of your spirit and by your word. Help me to cling to the promises that you have given me that this storm that I'm currently experiencing will in fact end, whether it's in this life or the next. God, would you provide like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ to speak into the noise and the chaos of the storm that I find myself in so that I can be reminded of who you are and your faithfulness and the love that you've already shown to me 
for you have died so that I could live. And ultimately, in Jesus, he puts us in certain positions where we can say what the disciples say in verse 33. It says, and when they, Jesus and Peter, when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, it it, it stopped. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Guys, in the midst of the storms that you experience, and God is doing something in you, so that at the end of the day, you may have a more beautiful understanding of who he is and the love that he has for you as you learn to trust him. If you remember, before this story, the disciples were somewhat confused as to who Jesus, who, who Jesus truly was. From their perspective, he was just this amazing man. But God, by his grace, uses this storm to reveal his true identity to them. When the storm ends, you'd expect the disciples to say, oh Jesus, thank you for stopping that storm. And I thought we were going to die back there. I mean, did you see those waves? They were ginormous. You'd expect for them to say that, but they don't. It's like they didn't even notice that the storm was over because they were so focused on Jesus that they began to worship him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Which on a side note is the first time that the disciples are are said to have worshipped Jesus all throughout the Gospels. You see, God is more concerned about revealing himself to you and creating within you a conviction in in which you shift your focus from the wind and the waves that surround you upon the only one who's capable enough to save you, which is Christ. That's why James, Jesus' half-brother, he eventually commands us and to embrace our suffering. Why? Well, it's because within our suffering, within the different storms that we might, that we might experience, we gain something so precious that it fully redeems and fully justifies the season of suffering that we are going through. And it allows for us, even if only through our tears, to count it all joy. Because within it, we gain Christ we gain a deeper understanding and love for our Savior who will never take his eyes off you, who will always be there to catch you, and most importantly, will always be faithful to those who, who call upon his name. And we can be assured of that because he's already proven his faithfulness to us. He's gone before us and he's defeated the ultimate storm of sin and death. He bore your sin and the debt that you owe to God so that you would not have to bear it. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that you, you who have placed your faith in him, can not only experience the gift of life, the gift of eternal life, but so that you can be given the promise that one day you will stand with him in heaven above every storm where there's no more pain, no more mourning, no more sickness, no more brokenness, and no more death. And so as we close, I want to leave you with two questions. First and most importantly, is do you believe that? And do you believe that Jesus has already gone before you, proving his faithfulness to you so that you can stand in confidence and knowing that death has been defeated, not knowing that not only death has been defeated, but that there will be a great and final day where there will be no more storms, no more pain, no more brokenness, no more mourning, no more death. Do you believe that? 
And if you're like Mason, I, I don't know if I do, or hey, I, I have a lot of questions, but I, I'd encourage you, there's a prayer team that meets up here at the end of each service. And yes, they would love to pray for you, but they would simply love to talk with you, to talk about what you think and what you, where, what the questions that you have on your heart. We don't want to just sweep them underneath the rug. We want to talk about the things that you're dealing with, that you're struggling with. We would love to, to process that with you. And so first, do you believe that? But then secondly, in the midst of the storms, who or what do you turn to? And do you look to yourself and to the things of this world to try to help you get you through that storm that you find yourself in? Or do you put your faith and focus your gaze upon the one who has promised you that he's not only praying for you, but he's with you in the midst of the storm by the power of his spirit and by his word as he creates within you a deeper understanding of the love that he's already shown to you and will continue to show you as well as you learn to trust him. And so let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. Um, and just to be honest, many of us are tired. We're weary. We're exhausted. Many of us have been, have been fighting against the wind and the waves for what seems like an eternity, just like the disciples. And so God, we pray that you would come. And that you would remind us of who you are. That you would remind us of your faithfulness. God, we pray that you would uh, allow your spirit to encourage us to, to, to meet us wherever we are at. God, we pray that we would remember uh, that there will be a great and final day. That you will usher forth a, a new kingdom uh, where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more brokenness. God, we pray that you would pr allow us as a community to speak into the different storms um, that our friends might be in. Would you allow us to um, encourage each other, to remind each other of who you are and your faithfulness and the love that you've already shown to us in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.